0: Thank you for that. This morning, somebody, thank you. That was my child in case you couldn't recognize that voice. Anyway, it is so good to see you all this morning. Thank you for being here, for being with us. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do. I would invite you to go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 11. We are going to wrap up Mark chapter 11 today, get into Mark chapter 12, and then see where we go from there. So we are back in our study, our series that we've called The Gospel. Again, this is the good news of Jesus Christ according to Mark's account of the Gospel. So um, we as believers, as we've studied Mark's account here, we have been invited literally into the ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we are really getting a firsthand account of Jesus, his life, his work, his ministry. And so for these things, we thank him. We we praise him for uh, this opportunity. Well, what's happened now is we get into this part of Mark 11 into Mark 12, we have now entered into what uh, is called the Passion Week, according to Mark's account, which is where he actually spends the bulk of his time writing about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So we have a lot of ground uh, to cover today. So Let's go ahead and dive into our text this morning if we could. Now, before we jump in, I do want to give us a recap of what's happened recently in the Gospel of Mark. Now, Jesus has just cleansed the temple or cursed the temple, if you will, for its abuse and corruption. And in response now, the Sanhedrin, or the religious leaders, are now seeking a way to destroy him according to what's read in verse 18. Now, Jesus has now gone back to Bethany He now returns to Jerusalem uh, and to the temple both with courage and boldness. And honestly, at this point, we can safely say that Jesus Christ has come to the temple looking for a fight. Now, by fight, I do not mean any type of physical altercation. Although I imagine when the Jews during Jesus's day in the mention of the coming King, the coming Messiah, that's what they imagined—that there's some Messiah was coming to put a holy beatdown on whoever on the Roman Empire and on those who were trying to keep the Jews in bondage. We imagine many of us as Christians today would have loved to have seen at this point in Mark's account. We would. Have loved to have seen Jesus simply show up and just go toe to toe with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the entire Sanhedrin. And instead of just mixing words with them and talking, I imagine at this point we may say, you know what, talk is cheap, words are enough, let's just go to fists. And then many of us truly believe that Jesus in this moment would have just whipped everybody, especially after what we've seen with the temple altercation and the cursing of the temple. But the reality is, in our text, That's not what we see at all. You see, Jesus returns to the temple for what would be a spiritual fight, a fight that will ultimately place his claim and his identity front and center. You see, Jesus in our text today is coming to announce by what authority he has to do and to teach what it is that he does and what it is that he teaches. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, excuse me, we are going to begin reading in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. Once you have found your place there, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in the honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now, again, this is the gospel of Mark in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. Mark writes, And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet." So they answered Jesus, and they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. He said to them, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower, and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for this day. And Lord, again, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to to be in this place to worship you. Father, we thank you for the moments that we've already had together to faithfully worship you, both in our Sunday school time, but also in our services today. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather in a place to worship you in song, to worship you through giving. And Father, we ask now that you would prepare our hearts as we worship you through the study of your word. God, as we just sang, speak to us, O Lord. Father, we pray that your word would be clear to us today. As we study this text together, Father, prepare our hearts and our minds. Help us to hear with clarity the errors of our way, and Father, in these next few moments, we just ask that you and you alone are glorified. Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you, and it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, before we dive into our text here in verse 27, I want to give us a quick note um, that several of you have asked me about in regards to last week's sermon. So before we jump in and set the scene here, I do want to answer the question that you all have asked, which is this, what happened to verse 26? Now, many of you probably have verse 26 either as a footnote or as a bracketed text in your Bibles? Now, that is actually a great question um, for all of us to think about. Now, if you see verse 26, it actually says this, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Again, this is Mark 11, verse 26. Now, I did not intentionally skip over that passage. Rather, to understand the brackets or the omission from the main text and to see and understand why it's in the footnotes, we have to understand the purpose for the brackets and the purpose for uh, the footnotes there. You see, all that we have in scriptures was originally written in either Hebrew, uh, then the New Testament in Greek. Eventually we would see scriptures written in Latin. And so what happens is we have the Word of God, which is made up of multiple documents that come from places like the Masoretic text, the Codex, the Syriacs, the Vulgate, ancient scrolls, and other uh, particular texts. So when a passage is found in some texts, like in verse 26, but not all of them, particularly the oldest, most accurate and historical texts that we have, and the most detailed works, then what the writers would do is they would add that passage as a bracketed text or as a footnote. In other words, what we see here is the writers are acknowledging that there is no way of knowing whether the intent was to have this passage there or whether it was Something that was omitted and then later added for whatever reason or purpose it was added. Now, we're going to see this again at the end of Mark. So just know it's coming. That's why we have it listed in our Bibles as a bracketed text or some sort of footnote. So there you go. That's why we have Mark 11 verse 26 listed out the way we do. Now, moving on from there into verses 27 through Mark chapter 12 verse 44. We're not going to cover all that today, but when you look at these particular passages, we see that Mark now records what would become five Temple controversies in Jerusalem that actually parallel the five earlier controversies that we've already seen in Galilee. We saw this back in Mark chapter two verses one through Mark chapter three verse six. Now Jesus' opponents uh, again are the religious leaders and the Sanhedrin, but now Jesus is in Jerusalem where the stakes will be much higher and the intensity of the conflict has now grown. In other words, Jesus went from taking on the Pharisees and what would amount in a neutral site in Galilee to now all of a sudden showing up in the backyard of the religious leaders in order to battle them on their own ground. So with these controversies, we are going to see everything moving to the inevitable climax of our story, which is the cross. Now, within each controversy, we are going to see some common reasons as to why people are not willing to follow Jesus Christ. So, as we walk through these together, I want us to pay careful attention to this passage, particularly to the response of the religious leaders, because here's the reality: not much has changed in 2,000 years. As people today use some of these same reasons and same arguments as to why they refuse to follow Jesus Christ. And so the reality is this. The main reason why people do not follow Jesus Christ is because of the authority of Jesus Christ. We have an authority issue in our country. We have an authority issue in our world. And dare I say it, we have an authority issue within the church. You see, as we read this passage today, I want us to listen carefully to the arguments being made. Listen carefully to the questions that are being asked of Jesus Christ. Listen carefully to his response, and then hopefully by the end of our time today, we will be able to answer together by what authority by what authority was Jesus able to do what it is that he does? And then, more, and then just as importantly, I believe, is this. I'm hoping that we're able to search our own hearts and our minds today and ask ourselves, under whose authority do we follow? Because you see, the reality is we all have an authority we follow. We all have something we believe in. We all have someone that we look up to. We all have different reasons for why we're even gathered here today. And the reality is if that reason is anything other than the authority of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, then it may be time to reexamine why we are here and what it is that we're doing when we come to worship. Now let's go ahead and jump into this text together in verses 27 and 28 of Mark chapter 11. We see here that Jesus and the disciples, according to the text, have come again to Jerusalem. Now this time all of the religious authorities show up. We know that the Sanhedrin are now present. Now, the Sanhedrin themselves represent the Jewish high courts. This is roughly 71 men led by an acting high priest. And what we know of the Sanhedrin is this, their power was great. And at the same time, they were sensitive to anything or anyone that would come to threaten their authority. So Jesus was clearly a threat to them as he returned to the temple. Now, no, Notice this about the Sanhedrin. They begin by questioning Jesus on his authority. Now, the questions that they ask of him were actually based on what happened the day before in the temple when Jesus cleansed the temple or, like we talked about last week, when Jesus cursed the temple. They are literally asking him, who gave you the right to wreak havoc and cause chaos in our temple? Now remember this, this is not the first time the issue of authority with Jesus Christ has come up. We've already seen this played out in Mark chapter 1, verses 22 and 27. We see it played out again in Mark chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. You see, Jesus is the man who teaches with authority. It is Jesus who casts out demons with authority. It is Jesus who heals with authority. Jesus does what only God can do. And so here, the Sanhedrin are not concerned about what Jesus can do, nor are they motivated by a willingness to even know him or understand who he is or rather what authority he came by. No, they are interested, uh, they are not interested, excuse me, in submitting their lives to him as a Lord. Rather, their goal is to trap Jesus Christ, to ultimately embarrass him, to then discredit him, and ultimately kill him. So you see, there are two goals with their question of authority. They either want Jesus to admit that he has no religious credentials and therefore his authority is made up, thus losing the respect and the following of the people, or, if he makes a claim to divine authority, they can now charge him with blasphemy, arrest him, and then start the process of his destruction and death. You see, for us today, as we look at these verses, the question of authority is important. We are, we all have a source of authority in our lives. We all have someone or something that guides us, that drives us, that rules in our lives. And the reality is for most of us, like the Sanhedrin, it is ourselves. You see, we have to be careful here. Oftentimes we say that we are the master of our lives. We are the the commander and captain of the ship that is our lives that we sail. But the reality is when we begin thinking like that as believers in Christ, we fail to realize that what we have in this moment is a pride issue which then becomes a sin issue because it is a pride issue, and therefore it will lead us away from the authority of Jesus Christ. You see, here's the reality for us as believers. We cannot claim to worship a sovereign God and yet dictate the will for our own lives. You cannot say Jesus is Lord and he has ultimate authority and then walk by the beat of your own drum. You either serve him or you don't know him. He is either Lord of all of our lives or he is Lord of none of our life. There is no middle ground when it comes to the authority of Jesus Christ. Now in verses 29 through 32 here, Jesus continues. We now see Jesus respond. And he actually makes a very brilliant counter move here, if you will. Jesus then questions them about the authority and the intention of John the Baptist. You see, Jesus uses a common debating technique that the rabbis often used in his day in order to determine and expose the hearts and the motives of the people. You see, the truth is those who come to Jesus Christ with hostile intentions will never receive from Jesus Christ a direct answer. So his response forces them to think about their own authority and where it comes from. You see, notice this about this passage in verses 29 through 32. Jesus actually commands them twice to answer me. Now, the implication of Jesus' words here reveal their lack of courage to give an honest answer in this moment. You see, Jesus here, uh, his question is significant because like Jesus Christ, we know that John came preaching a message of repentance and he ultimately bypassed the temple and the religious authorities to do so. Now, the common people saw John the Baptist as a hero and a prophet. And so when we look at verse 32, we see that the Sanhedrin were afraid of the people for they all hailed that John really was a prophet. You see, here's the reality about the religious leader in Jesus' day. They do not deny the evidence. They do not deny that John was popular among the people. And they recognize that even his ministry was given to him by God. You see, John the Baptist didn't need human credentials because he had God's credentials. However, in spite of John's authority, notice the religious leaders rejected him, and they didn't even lift a finger to help him when he was unjustly murdered by Herod. We see this back in Mark chapter 6, verse 14 through 29. But then back to our text, Jesus' Jesus's claim to authority Is based not on human authority. Rather, it is based on a divine authority given to him directly by God without any human endorsement whatsoever. In other words, what Jesus teaches us in verses 29 through 32 is he says, if you are unwilling to grant my premise and accept the evidence before you, then we are at an impasse and we have nothing further to discuss. If you can't judge the ministry of John based on the evidence, then you are not qualified to judge me. You see, this is a bold move by Jesus Christ, and yet the Sanhedrin, again, would abandon all evidence, they would abandon all rationality for an emotional reaction rooted in a fear of losing control, and therefore losing their position and standing, and ultimately losing their way of life. You see, that's the truth for us today as well. You see, the problem with Jesus is not the evidence. The evidence is clear. It's it's never been an issue of evidence, if we could just be honest with ourselves, though others try to make that claim. The reality is the problem is actually internal. It's within us. It's within our own sin. It's when then the idols of our heart and whose authority are we truly under? That is the real issue that all people face. Because you see, if we truly accept that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for our sins and was raised from the dead, then our lives will never be the same. In other words, even though the evidence is there, people will still... Stay away from Jesus Christ because they know if they come to him in faith, everything will change. You see, that's a part of submitting to the authority of who Christ is. We now say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done in our lives. We go on from there in verses 32 through 33. Now, this passage actually lays bare what is at the core of the religious leaders. We see in verse 32, they say that the Sanhedrin, they were afraid of the people. Now, there are a few things in life that are more paralyzing than fear. In fact, God's word addresses a fear that is common to all people, and that is this particular fear, the fear of man. In fact, when you read Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, We read these words, the fear of man is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. You see, this moment is actually a sad moment for the religious leaders. And it's a moment that we should take note of. You see, the Sanhedrin decided that what was expedient and safe was more important to them than what was true and right. And so that's why they answer in verse 33, we do not No. Here we see the leaders share a lie that was motivated by fear. They were more concerned with keeping their position and living a lie than they were to submit to Jesus Christ and ultimately walk in his truth. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is it about a relationship with Jesus Christ that is holding us aback? What is it about our faith that we are unwilling to go out and share the gospel that is holding us back? Are we more concerned with keeping our positions? Are we more concerned with living a lie? Are we more concerned because of the fear of men that held the religious people back? Is also the fear of man that hinders us in our movement and walk with Jesus. Do we have anything to fear? Do we have anything in our lives that we do fear? Perhaps it is man. Perhaps it is our neighbors. Perhaps it is our family. What is it? that is holding us back from faithfully walking in the will of the Lord. And you see, here's the reality. I can't answer that question for you. But I can plead with you. If you're going to fear anything in this life, fear God. Let me tell you what's not going to happen. There is... Nothing in this world that we will stand before in judgment that will even come close to comparing to standing in judgment before a high and holy God. That's why He should be our number one priority. It's why we should commit our lives to Him, even when it seems like people are swimming in another direction. We should stay faithful to the will and the authority of God that is found in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus moves from there into Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Now, here Jesus tells a parable of what should be called the wicked tenants. I believe that might be a more appropriate name at this point. Here we see a story of judgment, a story of mercy, a story of grace, and ultimately a story of wrath. Now, the meaning of this parable is actually an easy one. It's this, God sent his son and we killed him. Now the tension has now grown between the Sanhedrin and Jesus Christ. He has now embarrassed them with his question about John the Baptist, and now he's gonna stoke the fire some more with a parable that will expose the evil within their hearts. Now this parable is actually an allegorical parable that's actually drawn from Isaiah chapter five, verses one through seven. Now we know the identity of our characters in this parable are very plain to see. There is the man who plants, that is God the Father. There is the vineyard, which is Israel. There are the tenants, which are the religious leaders of Israel. There are the servants, which are the faithful prophets. And then there's the beloved son, which we know is Jesus Christ. Now we look at verses 1 through 5. And here Jesus is speaking to the people who have gathered. But he, again, he is still focused on the religious leaders when he speaks this parable. Now again, this parable is very similar to the judgment parable or the prophetic parable that is found when Nathan sets his trap for King David in 2nd Samuel chapter 12. You see this is the story of Israel's relationship to the Son of God. So the fact that a wealthy absentee landlord and tenant farmers are being used as the subjects would be familiar to all those who are listening. Now we see in verse 1 that God is the one who planted Israel. We know from Psalm 73 verse 1 that God is indeed good to Israel. He cared for his people. He provided for his people. He put in leaders to protect them, and he enabled Israel to prosper for his glory. He went to great expense on behalf of the vineyard, and yet we see the countless times where the vineyard failed at its assignment. Now, this should sound familiar because we just talked about a withered fig tree. We get into verses 2 through 5 here. And we see the landowner now makes a deal with tenant farmers to work the vineyards, to benefit from the produce, to pay a percentage back as rent. And so the owner believed that these farmers would be reliable caretakers. And so what happens is the landowner then sends a servant to collect, and the farmers beat him and send him away with nothing. Again, the landowner sends yet another uh, another servant, and they strike him on the head. And the scripture teaches us, and they treated him Shamefully, in other words, they insulted him and they dishonored him before the people. So, the landowner, again being gracious, sends a third servant and they kill him. And then, this pattern we now see between the landowner and the tenants, it will be the same again. Some they will beat, some they will kill. Again, the servants represent the prophets who, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, says that long ago. God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. We also know from Hebrews chapter 11 verses 35 through 38 that some of these prophets were beaten, they were imprisoned, they were mocked, they were considered unworthy, and they were killed. Look at our own prophets that we've already seen throughout the Old Testament. We know that Jeremiah was beaten and put in the stocks according to Jeremiah chapter 20 verse 2. We know that Isaiah, according to tradition, was sawed in two. We know that Zechariah was stoned to death in the temple according to 2 Chronicles chapter 24 through 21. Why? Because just as Nehemiah pointed out, in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 26, they, the people, were disobedient and rebelled against God. You see, that's even why John the Baptist, in Jesus' day, was beheaded. So in our parable, what we see is God's gracious, patience extended repeatedly over and over and over again but like the farmers like us today we rebel and we resist his call now verses six through eight to bring us back to our parable we now see one more act of amazing grace by God to his rebellious and sin-filled people You see, our landowner now sends his beloved son because he thought for sure they will respect my son. That's what the text teaches us. Now, the phrase here, beloved son, also means one and only Son. It's the same term that we see at Jesus' baptism, the same term that we see at Jesus' transfiguration. It's the same term that we find in John chapter 3, verse 16, when we learn what God has done for the world with his Son. And so we now get a glimpse of both the hope that God has for the people, but also the faithful love that he has for us as well. And so seeing the Son... The tenant farmers thought that the owner was dead. And so they kill the son so that they could claim his property as their own. In other words, what we see here from these farmers is we see an act of covetousness. And we see them acting on their own authority. It's like David Garland, when writing of this passage, says this, covetousness makes humans want what they should not have. It makes them think that this desire should be filled at all costs. Now, here's the irony of the moment. This parable would actually unfold in three days' time when the religious leaders would have God's one and only son killed. When we read John chapter 1, verse 11, we read this passage. Speaking of Jesus, and he came to his own, and even his own people did not receive him. You see, in our sin-filled need for the things that are not ours in the midst of our sin-filled need for idols in our life and our need to covet what others have within our own authority, we too have rejected the Son of God. And here is the reality, to reject the Son is to reject the one who sent him. We move into verses 9 through 12. And in speaking of this particular passage, Charles Spurgeon writes, here it is, we find God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. If Jesus Christ is rejected, then hope is rejected. We look at verse 9. Jesus now provides an answer to his parable. It's an answer that the religious leaders would be forced to concede. You see, the owner will come to destroy those who refuse his son, and God would do that very thing to Israel when he judged them for rejecting his son. In fact, historically speaking, it was roughly around AD 70 when Jerusalem would be destroyed and the nation was brought to ruin. You see, here's the truth. Judgment will fall on all who trample on the Son of God. We move to verses ten through twelve, and Jesus now quotes here Psalm one eighteen verses twenty two. 23 except he changes the metaphor to a building. Now this is the same psalm that was shouted by the people at the triumphant entry and what's said here is the stone that was rejected would become the symbol for the Messiah. The people cast aside that stone as worthless but God takes what man rejects and he makes it the cornerstone. In other words, he makes it the head of the corner. It becomes the stone that is the most important to the entire structure. So this teaches us that the rejection, humiliation, and crucifixion of Jesus Christ is an apparent tragedy, but God will use it all for a greater purpose that can only be described according to the text as the Lord's doing and marvelous in our eyes. And yet sadly, the religious leaders are still blind to it all. They still move forward with their plan to seize him and to kill him. In fact, verse 12 gives us a brief summary of their response when it says, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told a parable against them. You see, the reality is this. No matter what the plan of man, or what the plan man may come up with, Jesus Christ's power will always be victorious. God will win. Even Even if for a fleeting moment everything seems lost, the empty tomb proves that he will be victorious. That is where our hope lies. We move into verses 13 through 17, and here Jesus again finds himself being questioned again by what authority, which would lead into the second controversy between him and the Sanhedrin. Now, this time, the strategy of the religious leaders has now changed. In verse 13, Jesus is now confronted by some Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Now, the last time this group was actually together was back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. And so we know that this group is ultimately up to no good. Now, remember this. The Pharisees and the Herodians are actually natural enemies. The Pharisees were the conservatives of the day. The Herodians were the liberals who advocated for bigger government. The Pharisees hated Jesus because he messed with their religious agenda. The Herodians hated Jesus because he threatened their political agenda. So two natural enemies have come together again for one united purpose, and that was to put an end to Jesus Christ. Now notice this in our passage in verse 13. It uses the word Trap. Now, this word trap literally means to capture by hunting or by fishing. The idea for the word is actually uh, a violent pursuit of prey. So they were hoping that Jesus in this moment would have a slip of the tongue that would lead to a public mistake that would take him down. We get into verse 14, and now the hunt begins. You see, the Herodians and the Pharisees, they start with flattery. They call Jesus teacher. Now, we already know that this title of teacher was actually a title of respect. But remember, they have no respect for him at all. And so they then say to him, we know that you are true. In other words, they say of Jesus, we know you are truthful. Yet it is going to be the same group of people who would ultimately crucify him as a blasphemer. Now they now ask their question of him, which has been carefully Crafted. In other words, you are seeing the trap set, the bait is now in the trap, and all of a sudden we are waiting with hushed breath on what is going to happen next. This almost feels like watching some sort of wilderness show in this moment. That's what's happening here. And so they ask Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or should we Not. Now, in this moment, the stakes are high. The issue at hand is a volatile one. The question now requires either a yes or a no. And here's the reality of the question that we have not often thought of. No matter which way Jesus goes, they now feel like they have him caught. Why? Well, you have to know the wording of the question. You see, the Greek word here for taxes is the word kinson, which is a transliteration of the Latin word census, which means an imperial Roman tax. You see, the Jews despised the tax because it was a reminder of their subjection to pagan Rome. So if Jesus said to pay it, then the people would turn on him as a traitor. If he said not pay it, then he could be arrested and tried by Romans for sedition and insurrection. So at this Point, silence is no longer an option, but again, it is Jesus Christ who is going to recognize their evil intent. We move into verses 15 through 17. Jesus begins his answer by exposing their hypocrisy when he's asked, why put me to the test. Now this is the same phrase used in Mark chapter 1 verse 13, when Satan tempted the Lord in the wilderness. So just as Satan failed then, so too would the leaders fail now. Jesus then asked for a denarius, which was the required tax, or roughly a day's wages at the time. He then said what would become the most significant words in history. He says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God The things that are God's. You see, Jesus actually acknowledges the legitimacy of government. It is in this moment. That we see that not only has God ordained the family, God has also ordained the church, and now he is ordaining the human government. The government has a right to make laws, and we have a responsibility to obey as long as those laws do not interfere with our ability to honor and worship God. Now notice this. Notice how Jesus separates what is Caesar's from what is God's. You see, the coin had Caesar's image on it. Therefore, it should be his. And so by that very same logic, according to Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 and 27, we all bear the image of God. Therefore, Based on what Jesus said, it can now be concluded that our entire lives belong to God because we are made in his image. It's like we read in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. You see, with one simple statement, Jesus puts everything into perspective. He puts Caesar in his place, and then he placed God where God rightfully belongs in our lives as well. You see, here's the reality for us today. We are called to obey the government, but at the same time, we are called to not disobey the Word of God. We Do not worship man. We do not worship an institution. If you are a Christian and you are here today, realize this. For the believer in Jesus Christ, Independence Day is not marked by a flag. Our Independence Day is Easter, and it is marked by a cross and an empty tomb. Do we understand who has complete authority? Do we understand who it is we belong to? You see, we gather here for worship because Jesus Christ allows it. And there is no other reason. We are gathered by his authority. You see, in two distinct moments, Jesus was questioned by what authority? And in a way that only he can do, Christ reveals to us that his authority is from God. All that he does is of God because he is God. In other words, Jesus Christ has complete authority, and that's what we admit to as believers. So we have to ask ourselves, will we submit ourselves to the authority of Jesus Christ? Will it change our lives? Yes, absolutely. But will it also give us hope in what is to come? The answer to that question is yes, absolutely. And so my prayer is that we would never, or excuse me, my prayer is that we would leave our doubts behind today. You see, we have an obligation today as believers in Jesus Christ. We have a question To answer. And so I want us to reflect on this question. You see, Jesus is the final ultimatum. Without Christ, there is no hope. Without Christ, there is no grace. Without Christ, there is no mercy. Without Christ, there is no kingdom to come. So he either is the Messiah, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, he has absolute authority or he has none. And so we need to ask ourselves, by what authority do we live? By what authority do we worship? By what authority do we commune together? Because you see, as believers today, our answer should always be, when asked, by whose authority? By what authority? Well, it's in Christ alone. The one Who is and always will be victorious. Let's pray together.